Oh, great. Good mercy. I was just looking at the hockey. Oh, man, we got to tell there's so much hockey. We got to talk about the hockey here on the show, which is our show. What shows that? It's the Oilers Rig Radio Podcast. Uh, my name's Steven. I am on the show. You know who else is on the show? He's 30. His name is Avery. Avery, introduce yourself to the people. Yes, I am. I am 30. I'm 30, you know, going on 14 or 15 years old. And I am also the man who, whose work can be, can be found on the Hockey News, Yahoo Sports Canada, and many other places. And even though I'm 30, I'm still your mom's favorite podcaster. Your mom's favorite. And also on the podcast today is Megan. Her age is none of your business. Megan, how are you? I'm great. Um, I got two more days left on my Christmas holiday, uh, and now I'm thinking about all the work I got to get done that I've been putting off for the last two weeks. So that's fun. Uh, also, I'm 39. I don't care if people know that. Um, yeah, that's about it. You can find my work nowhere because I haven't written anything about anything in a very long time. But you can follow me on Twitter if you would like insights into uh, chaos in American politics. Florence Pugh movies, apparently, because I've been watching lots of those lately. and um, that's about it. That's all I talk about. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I mean, this is the Oilers Rig Radio Bus, so I guess we'll talk about them. They are 4 4 and 2 over the last two. One looked pretty good in their last game, but uh, right, I don't know. They they currently have the last wild card spot um, pinned down. And you could say, well, you know, most of the teams behind them don't really look like threats, so they'll at least make the play. But what the Colorado? Colorado is also behind them. Um, who is about to get Gabriel Landeskog back. And uh, I don't know, they've just been riddled with injury problems this year. So that means that LA and Seattle, Calgary, Edmonton, and Colorado, uh, one of the teams I just mentioned won't make the playoffs. And at least minimum, because who knows? I don't think Nashville's got a, they're not awful. Um, so how confident are you that the Oilers are going to make the playoffs, Avery? Oh, if I were to say a percentage, realistically, knowing how the, uh, how their division is and knowing how the Western Conference is, I will give them, um, I'll give them like 75% chance. I think they will turn things around. I think they will stabilize a bit more. At the same time, though, we said many times, this team should not be in a wild card number two, number one spot, number two spot. They shouldn't be a wild card team. They should be where the Seattle's or the LA's and Vegas's are right now in Western Conference. They're in, in the Pacific Division. So I will give them about a 75% chance of making the playoffs. Do they win a playoff series with what they have right now? I'm not so sure about that. Yeah, that is the big question. It's like simply making the playoffs is not really where the bar is, but it certainly... It's certainly the hard line for failure, even if it doesn't uh, uh, guarantee success. Um, yeah, you touched on some of the teams in uh, in front of them. Like, I do think they'll make the playoffs. I mean, really, because all they'd have to do is uh, hold fast. I think that I don't see why they'd suddenly get any worse. Um, I think there's a pretty decent chance that both L.A. and Seattle actually drop down. Um, I don't know. Megan, what's... I guess, how are you feeling about this season so far? Let's say that Avery's right and uh, the season were to finish just like it is right now and the Oilers make the playoffs um, and go on to play, pardon me, either Vegas or Dallas. Uh, how do you feel about that? What are your thoughts? Um, well, I made a question, I asked a question yesterday. Avery and Alex and I were talking in our group chat about something or another, and um, I did a little bit of math and I discovered that this season, uh, 
Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl have scored 38% of the Oilers goals uh, so far. Um, that's not great. I don't think. Um, because, and the only reason I, I asked the question on Twitter and of course some people figured out I was kind of being a dick and other people were like taking it very seriously. I don't think that's great. I think, uh, there's still, and I've said this for years, there's still like an injury away from absolute calamity. Um, and someone's like, well, they've got better depth this year. I'm like, do they, do they? Uh, cause I looked at the depth scoring that the Oilers have and, um, it's basically non-existent. Um, Outside of Zach Hyman and Ryan Nugent Hopkins, I'll give it and I'll leave Evander Kane off of it because obviously because he's been hurt for a while and he'll come back and score some goals. Um, but I think if the Oilers were to make the playoffs, season were to end today and they make the playoffs and they play either Dallas or I, they, I think they'd be playing Dallas based on the, the wild card nonsense. Um, I think they would lose in like five games. I don't think they have what it takes to actually win a playoff series. And in year eight of Connor McDavid, uh, I think that is an absolute systemic failure. Yeah, you touched on, okay, they'd be in real trouble if there was an injury. And I just mentioned myself, I, well, I I, I think at least I was trying to cut Colorado a little bit of slack because they have had uh, big injury troubles. Most teams, if you they were to have a catastrophic injury, that would be a problem, even if they saw a lot of teams still make the playoffs. But this is just me taking a long uh, way to say, how much slack do you cut them for Evander Kane being injured all year, Megan? Um, I think, I mean, I think there's a, you got to give him a little bit, of, uh, a little bit because like he, I look, I was looking at their, their individual stats yesterday and I don't know, he scored like six or seven goals in the 14 games that he played. And like, that's pretty, that's fine. Um, and he obviously does bring something, uh, but the, he, they've been without him now for long enough that like, you can't blame poor performances on not having Evander Kane in the lineup anymore. Like, it's one thing if it's a game or two, you know, kind of getting used to, like, lines reshuffling or whatever. But he's been out for long enough that now it's the responsibility of the guys who are there to do the things that they need to do. And sometimes they're just not doing those things. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I To me, I think that when talking about this other season, obviously the most amazing part is everything that uh, McDavid and Dreisaitl are doing. But the second thing that really jumps out at you is how much this team – Mrs. Kane. Um, Avery, are you surprised? Uh, and is it just his uh, on-ice stuff? Like, it sure looked... It's, Kane's obviously a very complicated guy to talk about. I'm not trying to brush off his uh, past issues but saying, oh, he's complicated. But he's a tricky guy to talk about. But um, for the time being, I'm just going to set all the reasons why many of us uh, weren't psyched that they got Evander Kane and just look at what happened when he got here. He started taking uh, Jesse Pugliarvi fishing. He started uh, getting in Flames' faces. He started doing all the things that it seems that the Oilers don't do. Do you think that they actually miss his personality, or is it really just, no, he was a point-of-game winger while he was here, and um, which was career stats for him, and that's what they miss is just having one more good forward? I'll lean towards more. It's, it, I'll lean towards more. They miss one more good forward on the ice because, again, we know this team, this Oilers team, is never built um, for for an injury. This team is never built beyond three or four players, or three or four or five good players. If one of those guys goes down, like Megan said, then all hell breaks loose. I think it's more his production. He did, of course, last year. He brought um, his a major impact in the playoffs last year. He was a point of he was on you the point of uh, game guy this year as well too, and. It's really on this team being unable to adjust and figure out, okay, if Kane's gone for three to four months, what's our plan B? And 
and again, like Megan said, you know, it will affect you for a week or two, but going months and months and months and still an issue, that can't happen. The elite team in this league figure out how to solve that. The elite teams in the NHL figure out what the plan B and the plan C is. You see when guys go down in like Tampa or uh, Vegas or even in Colorado, they can still find a way to tread water. But Edmonton, it's like, uh-oh, are they going to go down? Are they going to stay here? It's, it's question mark. So I think it's more... Any any on ice impact is more is greater for Kane than the off ice impact, and it, it is there. You do see you do see Kane talk to the guys. I know I know Kane is traveling now with the guys because Evander himself said he wanted to be more engaged with the team, so he flies with them on a on a handful of road trips just to engage with them more. You know he can't play, but I do think the on ice impact is greater than the off ice impact right now because you're seeing it in many aspects among that forward core. I uh, I agree with you. I'm looking at their forwards uh, right now. Even without Kane, I don't think that it looks that terrible. Like, yeah, I agree that it should be uh, better. I'm not, uh, I don't know, a massive defender of here. But uh, I still think their weakness looks to be their their defense. And obviously their large goaltending signing uh, hasn't really uh, worked out for them. Um, I, I, I don't know. It's uh, it, Okay, let me, let me put it to you this way. Rather than saying, hey, lots of teams get injuries, which I think is true and very fair to say. Every team gets injuries. Um, that's that's part of uh, life in the NHL. But uh, let me put it a little bit more specifically. Okay, so every team gets injuries. If you lose the equivalent of Evander Kane, every team's going to notice that. But you say every team is going to be absorbent or going to be able to absorb it. How should the Oilers be able to absorb it? Uh, like, what are they not doing? What's not happening that you think should be happening, Megan? Well, I'm just looking at their, just like their team stats right now. Um, Evander Kane has only played 14 games. The Oilers have played 40. And he has eighth in team scoring. I, I, I don't know what else to, like, that. that's a problem, right? He's 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 eighth in team scoring. He scored five goals and eight, and eight assists in 14 games. So he's 13 points in 14 games. And that puts him higher than... Um, a bunch of people who have played a bunch more games. And I'm not saying that I'm expecting, like, I don't know, um, Ryan Murray to, like, I mean, he's only played 13 games. He's only got three points. But you know what I mean? I'm not expecting that same kind of production. But, like, at some point, at some, I, I don't know, like, I'm just looking at this, and, and that's just a big loss for them. And like Avery says, you can go for a week or two and be like, okay, this sucks. Like, we got to figure this out. But what do they need to be doing? I don't know. The defense is definitely part of the problem. Um, watching Darnell Nurse get turnstiled is not fun. Um, but, like, I don't know what the solution is because they're tied up against the cap. There's no real moves that you can make uh, yep. to do anything unless you, you know, move somebody out. And I don't know at this point, like, who you can move out who's going to bring you anything of value back. You can. There's lots of guys who could be moved off of this team, but they won't bring you anything in return. Okay, I think you uh, touched on uh, the real issue there. Like you said, Kane's barely played any games, and he's still, would you say, fifth in scoring or eighth in scoring? So, okay, I'm going to just give you – I'm not exactly a Ken Holland defender, but even without Kane, looking at this lineup, I think they should be better uh, than they've been. So Mm -hmm. I'm just going to uh, read you a list of people who are not as good as they were last year, and in some cases, significantly less good than they were last year. Uh, Well, here's the list of people who are better 
or significantly better. McDavid, Dreisaitl, and Nuge, that's pretty much the list at forward. Um, I would say Tyson Berry is the only guy who's taken a step forward on defense. And uh, Clem Costin's been a significant surprise. And we've got a few guys who are kind of breaking even or young enough that you can't get mad. But uh, Yamamoto, Puyu Yarvi, um, oh, who's the other guy? That was, oh, yeah, Warren Fogle. That's why I'm not seeing him, is he's not even on the list uh, that I'm looking at right now. Darnell Nurse, Cody Ceci, Brett Kulak, Evan Bouchard. All those guys took a step back, which is not necessarily unreasonable for any one person to do. But a huge number of the Oilers have been worse this year than they were last year. And a lot of those guys are really key guys. Like you said, we need more depth scoring. Fogel, Pugliarvi, and Yamamoto all don't score. Um, not at a – or haven't been scoring at a satisfying rate uh, in a couple of their cases, especially considering the time with the elite players that they get. Uh, Bouchard doesn't look as good. As you said, Darnell Nurse looks worse. Maybe he's still hurt if you want to cut him some slack, but no one's been able to step up. Cody Ceci hasn't been as good as he was last year. Kulak hasn't looked quite as good as he has last year. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is, is there a coaching issue, Avery? Ooh, you know what? Or are they just getting burned by, uh, you know, that that happens, variance. Sometimes guys take steps forward. Sometimes they text, take steps back. Or are they just getting unlucky with it? Why are most of their players not as good as they were last year? I don't know if I can really pinpoint on just one thing to say why guys are struggling. It's a, it's a really complex thing. And and to an extent, Jay Woodcroft keeps his cards close to his chest. He's not really expanding on that too much as to what's going on. But it is, it's frustrating. It's really, it's really confusing because much of what he did last year, he's doing again this year here. Um, you see, I know we, against um, the Islanders, he went 11-7 and seven and Warren Fogel didn't play last night uh, against New York. But some of the things, it's really odd to see. But I think one thing interesting is that one thing that he, Jay Woodcroft is doing that they've been did a bit too much is you're seeing Woodcroft going back to loading up the first line with Dry Salem McDavid. That's a thing that Woodcroft didn't do too often himself. That was a Dave Tippett thing. So you're seeing Woodcroft going back there to that dry sidle of McDavid line. And I think to myself, like, wow, you can't keep on doing it too much. Like you the, again, we already know that the the forward core is very top heavy. And now you're overloading the first line again. It's very strange to why Woodcroft is going to that that um that tandem again. I might be him panicking to an extent, but it's a little bizarre because these are what the things Woodcroft is doing right now. Dave Tippett did. It's very un- it's it's unlike him to do stuff like that. Yeah, um, I was surprised he's got them at least on paper uh, spread out now. Like not just. Uh, oh, sorry, he has moved Nuge back to the wing. The last time I looked, Nuge was uh, actually at three C, but they got Ryan McLeod back now, so he's got the two big guns on two different mm. lines uh, right now. But I, I have to say, I get it when. No one else is scoring. Like, I think that Tippett, or sorry, Tippett, Woodcraft would agree it would be better to have uh, the the two superstars on two separate lines. But if none of their wingers are scoring, sometimes they're like, well, we just need some goals. At some point, I need a goal. And this can at least get me a goal. Um, I can't imagine that uh, he does not also feel frustrated. Like, hey, why can't Pooley Harvey buy a goal this year? Well, he's only got three. Uh, Yamamoto's only got three. Um, Fogel's got four. Um, Clem Costin's on the uh, the first line right now, which is surreal. Um, 
good for him, I guess. Uh, we'll see how, how long that keeps going. But um, how much of this do you put on uh, Jack Campbell, Avery? He's got a not totally awful 9-7-1 and one record in 18 games played, but he's lost the starting net. Uh, he's got a 8-7-8 save percentage. Um, and it hasn't been trending upwards. It's not like he's just had a bad month. Um, do you cut the, the Woodcroft any slack for that? Having one goalie who's having a hard time getting going? You know, it, it's it's tough. It's, Jack Campbell right now, it's very tough. Because, you know, I I, I knew coming in when he was signed, I knew he's going to be – I knew he wasn't going to be the world beater. I knew he was just going to be – he's the kind of goalie where I, I figured – Personally, he's better than Mike Smith, but I don't think anyone—I don't think anyone saw him coming in this early in the year and just struggling. I don't think anyone saw him coming in having a save percentage of under 900 at the start of the year. And it's—and he's—he's—he's he's battling the puck quite a bit to an extent, and his confidence level is just so bizarre. Because I watch Jack Campbell, and I—I I watch Jack Campbell, I see Stuart Skinner, and even interacting with these guys post game. Stuart Skinner, at 24 years old is able to brush off a bad game much easier than Jack Campbell. And to me, I think it's a little bit concerning how a 24-year-old goaltender in his second year can brush that off easier than Jack Campbell has been in the league now for quite some time. And I don't know what it's going to take to get Jack Campbell trending again to a guy who's on a five-year deal making that much money. Yeah, well, um, I'll say that he has been even worse than I expected, but I'm not shocked that he's uh, struggling as... Um, I don't think his uh, career showed a lot of starting goalie consistency. I was amazed that we gave him that contract. What's the story that I'm missing here, Avery? You're a reporter. We can hear Oiler news echoing in the background while you're talking. What to you is the dominant story right now? The dominant story right now is really it's really consistency. That's the really big thing. It was it was um, a thing that Brett Kulak mentioned a couple of nights ago when sorry when they lost to Seattle. The big thing Brett Kulak said was. This team has to find is struggling to find a way to be consistent. They're consistently inconsistent. And also, I don't I talked to, talk to Darnell Nurse this morning, and Darnell mentioned to me how you know, yeah, we we can find a way we can find a way to put together our string of three to four great games. But it's a matter of going beyond four or five games, and how do we have a, a strong stretch of five, six, seven, eight, nine games? And Empton hasn't done that yet. They haven't done that yet. That's a big thing. How do you find a way to stay consistent and not just have these little spurts. Of, oh, they look great. We're hammering a team 6-1, 6-2, without regressing back to, you know, losing to uh, an Anaheim or, say, uh, Vancouver. That, and, and they haven't done – and that's in, in the entire room. They think that we have to, we have to fight, figure out how to do that because you're not going to be considered one of the dominant teams in the West if you can't string together success beyond four games in a row. Indeed. Man, I'm going to ask you a question I just asked uh, uh, Avery, but I'm going to flip it a little bit. I said, okay, maybe we can't blame some of the rookies for not taking steps up. But I'm even as I'm uh, as we're talking, I'm starting to reconsider that. Um, okay, Clem Clawson has uh, been a pleasant surprise. But other than that, Dylan Holloway, Philip Broberg, Marcus Niemelainen, and uh, what's his name? Ryan McLeod. They've all been... Uh, I wouldn't say any of them have been bad and you don't want to say, well, none of our rookies uh, sparked. So uh, like you don't want to put yourself in the position of counting on, you know, 21 year old rookie to suddenly step up and become a top six uh, player. But none of these guys have 
like I think when we were looking at the roster, we said, okay, as long as one of those young guys kind of figures it out and is like a solid NHLer, that'll really help. None of them have been. Um, other, again, other than old Clint. Clint's been something. Maybe he's been he's such a good quote. Yeah, we might be overrating him a little bit. But uh, I don't know. Do you put anything on the coaching that um, these guys still haven't hit a higher level? I'll put it that way. Still kind of all look like borderline NHLers. Or is that just, yeah, that's the way she goes? Um, I think I think there might be some coaching, something or another. And I'm not going to get into like you know, what we see in systems and that sort of thing. But I do think that, like, I have this conversation with my dad a lot when we talk about coaching in professional sports. It's like, how much coaching do they actually need, right? Like, they're at the highest level of the sport that they're playing. Um, mm-hmm. how, like, what, you know what I mean? Like, they've they've been coached and they've gotten to this point and they're good enough to make an NHL roster or an MLB roster, NFL or whatever. Like, how much coaching do they actually need and it turns out that the younger that you are generally speaking unless you're like some kind of freakish talent you need a whole bunch of coaching you need to learn how to play within the system uh on the team that you're on and i think for some of these guys it's been a really hard transition and i think because the oilers have been so top heavy for the last number of years that it's really tough to bring people in into the bottom six um, and not necessarily give them the chance to like play up, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like if you pair these guys with better players, they should in theory play better. Um, but for whatever reason, that hasn't worked. So Costin's up there on the top line. Good, good for him. Enjoy it. He's not going to be there very long, but enjoy it, you know? Um, and he's earned it for right now and that's fine. But the fact is that there's something not being well communicated between coaches and players because you're right if you have the Holloways and McLeods um Costin's a bit of a freak um in that way but if you have those guys uh Marcus Nimalin in 22 games zero points yeah um I basically I agree with you and your dad's question is like how much do they need like I, I don't know maybe this is a cop out but yeah I don't know I have a hard time um saying like it is at least possible that oh no these guys don't have the stuff for the NHL or at least they don't have it yet this absolutely might not be the coach's fault um but I think that it was reasonable to say okay well the plan is we're hoping that between Proberg and Holloway, and then to a lesser extent, uh, some of those those other names that we mentioned, somebody will kind of step up, and then maybe one of Puliyarvi or Yamamoto will figure out how to be a top six winger. And uh, all those things have not happened, and um, I don't think any of them were unreasonable expectations. So it gets to that ooh, that famous Mac T quote. Well, we find ourselves having to ask the question. Um, I I liked. Woodcroft uh, a lot when he came in, but I'm not saying that he's uh, the problem. But I will say I think the roster is constructed slightly better than it's playing. But I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I thought the Canucks roster looked not too bad either, and uh, it's been fairly disastrous. But then their goalie was awful, so I don't know. There's a there's a lot of mystery to hockey. Um, I don't know. That's pretty much all I have to say about the Oilers. Like, I think it's all really, we could talk again about how they need a, another defenseman and how that defenseman can't be just a, a different look on the third pair. They need some more high end talent on the, 
uh, at the on their defensive core and how maybe they might have to move one of their promising young forwards to get it. But we, we've we already talked that into the ground. Uh, Avery, are we missing anything? Is there something that we should be saying that we're not? What's What interests you about the Oilers right now? I would just say, you know, and you mentioned right there, so we talked it into the ground. It's just the... It's just the apprehension. Just, just the apprehension of the front office to make that big splash and make that big move to really show they want to win this year. Because you mentioned right there, this is, this is a team that for a very long time will go in and make a move to improve the the third pairing or the bottom six. It's been a long time since this team has come out and made a move that's going to improve the top pairing or. The, uh, or the top six forward core, uh, save save for you know when they brought in Kane. But it's like this team is always, is uh, it's as if this regime is scared to, is it this team is um they're scared they're scared to come out and say we want to win this year. It's always we want to win in a year or two. It's never we want to win right now, which is which to you know a lot of fans is infuriating and rightfully so. Yeah, I think I think that is the uh, ultimate criticism of Holland. I think he's. I'm not a hardcore Holland hater. I uh, rank him. I think I think I've been calling him about a C. I think you can make a good case for C plus. Pretty good case for C minus. But I think uh, his grade is somewhere in the C. But his if you just look at his moves, none of them are that, um, or few of them are that egregiously awful. It's mostly opportunity cost. He just hasn't made the team that much better. Uh, and there were times when we had loads of cap space. His best move was uh, Evander Kane, and that kind of fell into his lap. I'm not sure how much credit to give him for a very unique set of circumstances um, that led to Evander Kane not only suddenly being a free agent, but being a free agent in the middle of the year when almost no one could take him, and then even fewer people wanted him, and then he was dirt cheap for that reason. Uh, like It was such a bizarre uh, thing. I am, I will say, for all the Circling back to Evander Kane, actually, maybe this is a, a good one to flip back to the group. It's clear that the team was a lot stronger with him. Um, I'm pretty confident that when he comes back, assuming that he's healthy once he returns, that we're going to pretty quickly uh, notice um, that difference. And I guess what I'm saying is, as an Edmonton Oilers fan, is this yet another nail in the coffin of the evolving Wild Twins' credibility? Uh, they say... <laughs> They make the most outrageous claims and they often refuse to explain them and get quite uppity when someone says, hey, that's a really counterintuitive claim. And I find they get quite condescending. Actually, I'll take that back. They're always nice. They're never snarky, but they are like you're they just basically imply that you're dumb if you don't agree with their wildly counterintuitive claims. And their wildly counterintuitive claims are mostly stupid. They don't understand the math that they're throwing around. Uh, if anyone who's listening doesn't understand what I'm talking about. Uh, this summer, they said Kane was a replacement uh, level player who's worth about a million dollars. And even other, if in case you're like, well, you know, the analytics say, the analytics uh, don't say that. Uh, Dom has him as underpaid, thinks he's a $7 million player. Um, they just really stake odd positions, which often revolve around the Oilers. Like they don't think, they think that Drysaddle, I believe, uh, was one of the, have him as one of the more overrated players. Don't, not quite that he's bad, but just that he's dramatically overrated. And they even have uh, Connor McDavid is probably a little bit overrated because they don't value scoring and overpenalize, um, uh, well, taking penalties, quite frankly, because they just ignore that the, yeah, the refs tend to even them up. So even if Kane takes a lot of penalties, that probably leads to the Oilers getting more power plays, which they come out ahead on. Anyway, that's my little rant. 
comments on that, Megan? Um, well, I don't, I don't pay much attention to Evolving Wild at all, but um, I, I don't think that it's fair to say that Kane is a replacement. Well, like he's very good, and we've talked about this a lot um, about how all of the non-hockey stuff, if you can put it aside, like he was exactly what the Oilers kind of needed, uh, and it was true. Like that's what we discovered last year. Um, I don't know. Is he underpaid? No, I think I. I don't know. I think they're all overpaid because they played children's games and like whatever. I guess market. Well, they are right. Like market value suggests, you know, that they're not. But like they're all overpaid. They just play kids' games, and we spend too much time uh, talking <laughs> about them for well, people playing children's games. <laughs> However, um, I will say that like Kane is exactly hockey-wise exactly what we expected him to be, and I think that that's like you said. I think that's Holland's biggest win, even though it was mostly an accident. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like we're recycling all our talking points. I was trying to bring something up, but as much as like the season keeps marching on, there actually aren't a lot of new stories popping out at us. They've been pretty much the same all season long as well. Now nurse doesn't look as like, he looks like he's taken a step back from the last couple of years. Maybe that's still his injury. McDavid and Drysaddle have been amazing. They're have arguably the, the best power play of the century. Um, though they still have, at least some struggles at evens, which is probably tied to the defense and some of their wingers. I don't know. The goaltending, Skinner's been good. Campbell's been bad. Like, I don't know how many times we can say these things. None of their kids have uh, have amazed. A few bunch of their wingers are not necessarily terrible, but are overpaid. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's There has been no new developments across Oiler land. Um, they're basically just waiting for Evander Kane to uh, come back and maybe maybe they will trade for a defenseman. The team has at least sort of admitted, okay, we could, we need to improve the defensive core. God knows where they think that improvement needs to come, what they're willing to pay for it, any of that stuff. Um, I don't know. Do, do you want, this is the Oilers thing. We mostly talk about the NHL. Do you guys want to talk about the world juniors, Megan? We could talk about the world juniors for a minute. Sure. Let's talk about them for a hot minute. How'd you like them? Um, I didn't watch all of the games. I used to really, really, really get behind the tournament when I was younger. And now the whole Hockey Canada thing has sort of made it tough. And also watching people like bully teenagers on the internet because they lose hockey games is like disgusting to me. So like, I don't, I don't get as excited about it. Um, but I think what I noticed this year watching the Canada games, especially, I didn't even watch them all, but I did watch the gold medal game and whatever. Um, Connor Bedard is fucking incredible. Hmm. Uh, like, I didn't really know because I don't pay enough attention to junior hockey. I don't care. I'm like, oh, cool. A 15 year old gets to play the WHL. Big deal. Like, I don't, I don't care. Um, but just watching him, I was just like, man, this kid is unreal. Like, he's, he's so good and so, like, unbothered by all of the attention on him, which I think is really fascinating. Yeah, I agree. He, uh, was, I would say, I had a lot of the same thoughts as you did. Like I used to be a massive fan of the world juniors. I I said it was the best hockey of the year. Um, And then I got kind of cynical for a combination of reasons. Uh, But I watched more this year than I had the last couple. And I had kind of forgotten how the one thing about the world juniors, which is true is this is the best hockey of the year. It's 
such a combination of high skill and loads of mistakes. Hockey is so much more exciting when, when people are making mistakes and even the best 19 year olds in the world make a ton more mistakes than the best 29 year olds in the world. Uh, Avery, did you watch it? Yeah, just for, yeah, for, you know, from a, from a hockey personality standpoint, kind of had to watch, but you know, I'll agree with Megan, you know, Connor Bedard, watching him play is ridiculous. That kid is going to make some franchise very happy, be it, you know, be it Montreal <laughs> or, or Arizona or Columbus, whoever else gets him this summer. But yeah, like much of what was already said, Hockey Canada really, you know, I was the same way, you know, I would get up and watch the games at whatever ungodly hour when they were playing over in Europe, I would tune in and, you know, I was... I was a person who go to watch parties at some people's houses to watch his games. But also, too, one thing that also, in a way, I did like, though, was the fact that smaller nations, like, like Chechia, made to go gold medal game, had a chance to win gold for the first time since 2000. The fact that they beat Canada in the first game, I liked. And showed that, you know, people always say, oh, there's too many teams, there's too many teams. For that group, for that nation, to get back to a gold medal game, that means so much for them. I want to see more smaller nations continue to make progress in the world juniors. It means a lot for these small nations to go deeper in tournaments so that every year isn't just a repeat of Canada, USA, Canada, Finland, Canada, Russia, when they're back, if they ever get back into IWHF. But like seeing them in there, that was great to see. And you know what? Even if, che even if Chechnya didn't win overtime, it would have been great. A team that won for the first time since 2000 would have been a great story for the whole, for the whole tournament as a whole. Yeah, I totally agree. I really liked what a hard time Slovakia gave uh, Canada. That was a lot of fun. Um, it's honestly, it was almost hard to cheer for Canada, not for any of the uh, outside reasons, just because, man, we had some underdogs really bringing it. And it's always fun to watch an underdog story. And as Megan said, just it's hard not to talk. Uh, just make this the Connor Bedard conversation. As uh, Craig Button and a few other people said, maybe this is the best team Canada world junior team ever because it was loaded with both returning players and first round selections and to be honest most of them they didn't necessarily look bad but it didn't look like the best team Canada ever other than good mercy Connor Bedard is like at another level um he had what well, I had it right in front of me there 23 points in seven games he was over a goal of the game player um the whole team it was at times like they were waiting for him to get back on the ice, and he is only 17, which is weird. Was not the not the position the World Junior Team was in. Uh, I don't think has ever been on in with a 17 year old before. Um, like as good as Crosby and McDavid were, and they were both comparably talented uh, as junior players to Bedard. Um, they both weren't top line players when they were on the the World Juniors, or at least not the. Certainly the team wasn't relying on them the way that they were relying on Bedard. And he absolutely delivered. And I don't know. I think his transition to the NHL is is going to be interesting. I'm curious on you guys' thoughts because he doesn't have McDavid's obvious speed or um, Crosby's uh, like uh, necessarily his his clear like uh, vision of hot like off the off the charts hockey IQ. He doesn't have any one. He doesn't have loads of size. Um, there's no one thing where you're like, ah, that's his, other than his shot, he's got a great shot. Um, and I've even heard a few people say, well, he's a center and junior, sure, but when he makes the NHL, he'll probably make it as a wing just because he's a little bit smaller and he doesn't, I don't know, doesn't have any one other obvious ability. But uh, his stats and his the way he puts it together it appears to be perfect. Like his... Uh, for whatever it's worth, uh, Megan, you said you weren't, you don't follow juniors as much. Um, I don't follow them closely, 
But I think you've got a pretty good case for his numbers are better than McDavid's were. So I don't I don't know. I'm excited to see what happens with him. Avery, what do you think is going to happen uh, with uh, Bedard in the NHL, and where are you hoping he's going to go? You know, most people aren't going to like me for this, but I want is I think he's the kind of guy who can be an elite. I think he'll be a, of course an elite top six forward no matter where he goes. But I I want to see him go to Arizona. I want to see him become the face of Arizona hockey because this is the kind of guy where, much like you see other players become the face of hockey and say, like Dallas, Jason Robertson can be that guy. You see guys who became face of hockey in L.A. and the Copertar. I want to see him, if the Coyotes can't get Matthews, I want to see him be that guy in Arizona in which you can bring Connor Bedard in and get kids from Scottsdale, Tempe, other parts of Arizona, and be that, and be that kid who can help drive even more kids playing hockey in Arizona. I mean, it's actually in terms of registration, in terms of Arizona is the fast one of the faster growing states in terms of hockey re- registration. Uh, and, 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 and it's like it's near Texas and California. Like it's growing there. In terms of amateur hockey, it's growing. So if Connor Bedard is there as the guy to look up to when the arena is built in Tempe for kids in 10, 15 years, that'd be that'd be a great thing. As much as people want to say, oh, the Coyote shouldn't be there, Coyote shouldn't be there. Connor Bedard as the Coyote. Will do a lot of good things for the state for hockey down in the Sun Belt regions. Okay, you know what? I'm actually uh, that's all well and good. Uh, I don't care about growing the game. That's the owner's problem. But here's uh, there's something that you said that uh, did kind of stick out of me when you're like, I think he'll be a good top six forward. I have heard as much as like the Bedard hype machine is off the the rails. I have heard a few people say, oh, as good as he is as a teenager. He's not going to translate to the NHL as well as Crosby or McDavid did. Um, like I said, that's ridiculous. For a combination of reasons. Um, yeah, I, you only described him as a top six uh, winger, Avery, not like arguably the best player in the world this time next year. Um, am I sensing some hesitation to jump on, all on board the Bedard train? Like mm-hmm. I like like he's he, like he, he's definitely going to be a guy who will get over eighty points. Like he's going to be a guy like he. I don't, like next year, like next year, will he be a, a top five guy? Like, no, I don't think so. Again, with McDavid and Drysaddle and Crosby, and like there's still so many guys who are still changing the game. Like, it'll take it'll take some more it'll take some more time for Bedard to be at that level. But anyone saying he won't be near there in time is is that's crazy. Like, give him, it will be there 18, but by the time he's 21, 22, 23, Connor Bedard is definitely going to be a guy who will challenge for the heart. I do think. No, oh, well, there you go, Megan. Where are you hoping he goes? That's uh, for me. That's a real fun thing. No, Who do you hope gets to go? I don't want him to go to Chicago. I think that would be terrible. Um, I think I don't know. I think it would be funny. I don't know, like chaotically, if Montreal got the first overall pick again. Uh, I think that would be <laughs> great fun. Um, but I was just thinking as you guys were talking about you know his stealing or whatever. Do you know who he reminds me of? Tell uh, me. I think Ryan Nugent Hopkins. Yeah. Um, like an extremely rich man's Ryan Nugent Hopkins. Yeah, the difference between him and Ryan Nugent Hopkins is that uh, there isn't. I don't think there's a better option as the number one pick uh, in this particular draft. Whereas in the 2012 draft or 2011, whatever year that was, there was a better option for a number one pick. Um, that's the biggest difference. But I just the way that he plays, he's a little bit small, um, but he's able to sort of overcome that. And like he's 17 and he's playing in a tournament with like 19 year olds. Um, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's huge, right? Like 
in that sort of athletic development, that's a big, big difference. And he looked just fine out there. Like you said, he's got 20, had 23 points in seven games. That's a point of period. Like that's yeah. absurd. That is absolutely absurd. Um, but yeah, to see him go to like Montreal would be kind of fun. Um, but I, I think honestly, if he goes to a place like Arizona, that's fine. I, I agree with Avery sort of in principle, but he's, I think the kind of talent that, He's not quite the McDavid sort of world beater or Crosby kind of, I think he needs to be surrounded by other good players um, or decent players in order to like make that transition as, as smooth as possible. And to sort of, you know, give him that opportunity to be successful. Um, that being said, Montreal would be pure chaos and I would love every minute of it. I, I think I have heard a few um, scouts, I don't know if they're trying to be controversial or just honest, not necessarily pick apart his game, but just say like, okay, here's why it's not going to translate quite as well. Or some comments on, well, it's because they're using him this way or whatever. At a certain point, I actually think the smart thing to do is not, not overlook the box cars as much as, you know, we're all trying to money pocket and be smart and, uh, you know, listen to the, the smart thing to do uh, and not overcook you know, make too much of just how many goals and assists somebody has. When someone has that many goals and assists, you stop worrying about uh, some of the specific elements of the um, scouting report and say, well, listen, whatever his size or shot or speed or whatever the thing that you're saying isn't quite as elite as you'd like it to be, uh, might be he scores a goal a period. That is, or a point a period, I should say, and over a goal a game. That's uh, that's outrageous. That's outrageously good. Um, I don't put any ceiling on him. I totally agree with you anywhere but Chicago. And then I'll follow up with, I will not be excited if he goes to Columbus, Anaheim, Arizona, San Jose, or, Van- or Philadelphia, as I don't think those are just very interesting teams to me. By far the most exciting thing to happen will be if Montreal gets him with Florida's pick. If Florida's pick <laughs> wins the draft lottery. And I know some people up there hate the Habs. Fine. The world is a more interesting place when the villains are strong. Like, I liked that Calgary got hit a home run with Matt Kachuk. That made the uh, Battle of Alberta way more interesting. And Montreal having Bedard will just make the league way more interesting. That is the best, absolute best case scenario as it goes to Montreal. And then I would be really happy if he goes to Ottawa or Buffalo, too. Two long suffering uh, teams who or long-suffering fan uh, fan bases who have good teams, like at least decent teams. Like if he goes to either of those teams, um, it's not like he'll have to suck for eight years before they put it together. They'll probably be immediately good uh, the next year, um, or at least immediately competitive. Those Any of those things happening would obviously require an against-the-odds uh, lottery win. He's probably going to go to Anaheim or Chicago. But, you know, I hope that someone – wins the lottery. That's really what I hope that a decent team, uh, even Vancouver, as much as I don't like the Canucks, it'd be fun to see the kid go home. And uh, it's, it would just be more fun if someone who's like not in the worst five teams uh, beats the odds and wins the lottery. So those are my thoughts on that. I don't know. Is there anything else to talk about uh, around the league? Anything jumping out at you this, this week, Avery? Jump out to be this week. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, Oh, I'll 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 say I'll say his point here. I know Megan's gonna love this. I know I, we mentioned this in the in the group chat. Jared Bednar in person, very striking man in person. Mm. <laughs> Jared Bednar can get it. Let's just um let's just go with it. Absolutely. <laughs> there was 
there was that hot coach list a while back um, and that put uh, was it Jay Woodcroft on top or Joe Sutter on yeah, top? And I was Jay like, that was Sutter on clearly top. a fake list. It was, uh, yeah, it was very clearly a fake list because we made a list in our other group chat and Jared Bednar and Marty St. Louis, they were guys like way, way up on that list and uh, Woodcroft and Joe Sutter did not even crack the top 15. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, there's both of those guys are actively odd-looking fellas. Like mm-hmm. their Woodcroft and Sutter are both relying on their personalities to get their wives. I'll put it that way. Um, so yeah, that was a fake list. It was bizarre. Uh, we would all make love to Jared Bednar if we could, and so would you, beloved audience. Don't pretend with us. <laughs> We've been through too much together to play these games. Um, I don't know. I think the most interesting thing in the West right now is that the Avalanche are pretty comfortably out of the playoffs, but uh, yeah, they're riddled with uh, injuries, so who knows? I don't know. Should we move on to uh, another exciting round of highly personal? Oh, the Winnipeg Jets are really good, and they're getting um, I believe uh, Schmidt and Wheeler back, so they're about to get better. I'm happy that Winnipeg's doing well. That's another team. The weird thing about the NHL is it's full of teams who are bad, who you look at their roster like, ah, they shouldn't be this bad, and then suddenly they're not. It's uh, the darndest thing. Like the 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 coaching swap between them and Dallas has been fascinating. Like Dallas loses their coach, gets a new coach, and suddenly becomes significantly better. So you might say, oh well, clearly Rick Bonus wasn't that good of a coach, but he goes into uh, Winnipeg and they get significantly better. So maybe he was a good coach, uh, and then Winnipeg's coach goes to Florida and they get significantly worse. So I uh, I don't know. It's always fun to watch coaching swap rotations. That's kind of neat. I think coaching and goalies are both voodoo, generally speaking. Usually. I mean, I assume coaches must do something because most people clearly could not do it. But they're and they're as fun as it is to make fun of the uh, coaching recycles. Like someone just gets established as an NHL coach and then they always they just get recycled, even if they're never good. Paul Maurice is probably. One of the ultimate uh, examples of that. I don't know what they're doing. Um, like, I'm not in the room. I yeah, I actually have a really hard time saying how good or bad any given coach is. So, I don't, I don't know. I can see the results. I can see that Maurice gets consistently mediocre results. But even getting mediocre results is, is tough. So, if you hire Maurice, you at least know that you're going to get basic levels of competency. Competency, I suppose. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think, well, and I think the coaching question, like think about the stuff that happened in Boston last year, right? Like the way that there was all of this like nonsense about, you know, coaching for this and this and this, and then there's like rumors about like, I'm not going to play for this guy and blah, 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 and all this sort of stuff. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's, maybe there's something to be said about, you know, a coach losing the room and whatever that looks like. And I think that's the case in any job though, like any sort of, um, any sort of organization where you have a person whose job it is to relay messages to other people, like you're going to have friction, right? That's just is the thing that's going to happen. I just think it's really interesting in sports and hockey specifically. I think basketball is probably sort of the same because you have kind of a head coach and a lineup of guys. Football is different because you got your position coaches and that sort of thing. The head coach maybe isn't quite so involved with like each individual player. But I think that the whole coaching question is always a really interesting one because like at some point the players, like somebody has to be the decision maker. 
You know what I mean? And yep. the coach tends to be the fall guy, even if the players have just like, you know, are just not executing the plan properly or whatever. The coach tends to be the guy who gets blamed. And I think it's probably about 50% of the time it's the coach's fault, 50% of the time it's just a combination of circumstances. But we always look at coaching as sort of the, well, this is the problem with this team. It must be the coaching. And I don't know that that's always true. I don't know if I've ever seen a carousel that's interesting because Boston, as you said, last year had a good team um, with a ever universally acknowledged good coach, but who the players were pretty openly like, we are done with this guy. Um, Pasternak kind of apparently was leading that charge of, I'm not going to resign here if he's still here. So they lose their coach. They get a new coach. They uh, instantly become the best team in the league. Um, so you might say, oh, well, clearly their coach was bad. He was holding them back. Well, he goes to an underperforming Vegas team and turns them into the third best team in the league. Okay, so maybe he's good. He's way better than the coach that Vegas lost. I don't know. That guy went to a, I don't even think that good Dallas team and turned them into the fifth best team in the league. Oh, well, it must be because Dallas's old coach was better. No, because he went to a mid-level uh, Jets team and turned them into the seventh best team in the league. And then we mentioned Vegas earlier that uh, they fired um, Gerard Gallant midseason um, because uh, and he just was a guy who kept getting mysteriously fired all the time. And he almost got fired in New York this year because they were un underperforming for almost the entire season. So, you know, OK, well, there we figured him out. He's not that good. Now, the Rangers uh, turned it around about three weeks ago and went from being mysteriously out of the playoffs to the eighth best team in the league. They're seven, two and one in their last uh, in their last ten. So it, I don't think I've ever seen a road like a yeah, rotation like this, a carousel like this, where almost every team who got a new coach, that coach found a ton of success where he went. Even uh, New Jersey, their associate coach is Florida's, uh, they, you know, they have the same head coach that they had last year, but they got a new associate coach and the guy that Florida fired. And now uh, they're really good. They're the sixth best team in the league. So almost, I'm just looking at the, the top 10 teams in the league. Um, all right, LA, Washington, and Carolina, there's nothing interesting to say about uh, any of the coaching things that they did. Toronto was started off, it's because it's Toronto, but they were talking about, oh, maybe this is the end of Keith. Now that he's got Toronto in comfortably number four, they're at the, the absolute top of the league. Um, I don't know. There's just massive uh, coaching movement, and that movement seems to be paying off. Uh, I thought that Daryl Sutter would find more success in Calgary uh, this year with like a perfect defensive core. He loves defensive cores, but um, you know, what are you going to do? If your goalies doesn't stop pucks uh, and your scores don't score with them, that's going to be a problem. Um, all right. I think that we've said all the NHL things that we have to say, I guess, um, other than uh, yeah, Buffalo is the most fun team in the league and they have a plus 21 goal differential. I've got a, they're seven, two and one in their last 10. I'm not quite ready. And they've got $17 million in cap space. I'm not quite ready to write the Sabres off yet, though. I don't know who I'm predicting to drop out in order for them to make the, make the playoffs. Uh, Megan, would you like to ask us uh, each a highly personal question? Oh my goodness. Um, sure. All right. I usually have the tab open with like questions and stuff. Um, but no, actually, here, uh, here's. I'm just trying to think. Um, it's not a highly personal. Well, it's it's highly personal ish, but it's something that you and I've already talked about briefly. Um, if you had the power to make anybody, everybody that you know, 
read one book, yeah, what would it be? What's the book um, that you would be like, this is the thing that you need to read and everybody that you say, like, you need to read this does read it. Like, what what would that book be? I'm probably going to say Sirens of Titan by uh, Kurt Vonnegut, which if I were to think about it more, I think I could come up with something that would get through. Like, that's a very weird, at times, silly sci-fi-ish uh, book that I think a lot of people would have a hard time getting into. Um so I would like to think of something that I feel would be more universally accessible, um, but it is quite readable. And also, I just really believe in the uh, lessons that the book has to teach. So I would probably go with that. Okay. I can't tell you the lessons. You need to read the book and find them for yourself. But um, yeah, I think it would make the world a better place. And it's okay. a good book. Avery, do you answer the Bible or the Quran? <laughs> oh, Avery's muted. I don't know if he knows that. Oh, well, then he doesn't get a vote. Um, I, oh, this, I, I asked the question and now it's. Oh, there we go. My answer is, Avery, what's your, what's your answer? Okay. Well, I was going to say one second here. I, I had, I, I actually had my Google here. One second. I'm going to pull it up here. So the one book. That I would people would read if the um, Trevor Noah's book "Born a Born a Crime," because mm, I think okay. it's a great book that looks at um, the perseverance of Trevor Noah coming out of South Africa, trying to get into the world of comedy and TV hosting, but also to it reminds people and those who may not know or too young for it to teach, about, teach them about South Africa in terms of what the culture is like for Trevor Noah and other people who are more mixed uh, mixed race to live in a culture that say you know. You know, okay, you're mixed, but at the same time, you are a black person in a country that for decades after segregation has gone to America still said you are, you can't live here, you can't do this. So learning about the difficulties of a person who is mixed race in South Africa, it's a fascinating read for those who didn't know about that mixed in with how he coped by getting into comedy and learning about it, about the other parts of the world. So I think it was a really, it was a really good read and a really good look in terms of how South Africa evolved from apartheid to what it is now. Oh, yeah. Megan, you got an answer? Uh, yeah, so I'm, I read a lot. I don't know if people are aware. It's January the 7th, and I've read four books since January the 1st. So, like, I read a lot when I've got time. Um, I would say, I think the book that I've been, like, the most sort of evangelical about in the last while is All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr. And I think that that's something that people should read um, for a whole pile of reasons. But understanding that historical fiction, like World War II historical fiction, is not everybody's uh, cup of tea. I would say that the other book that I think if you... Um, if you live anywhere on the prairies, I think the book that you should read is Who Has Seen the Wind by W. L. Mitchell. And even oh, though you might not be able to empathize with Brian uh, and his and his journey, uh, the first time you read it on the second or third reading, you might find yourself sitting in the middle of a field weeping, as you do. Well, I will uh, reread that as I read it uh, in high school. And... Uh... Uh, I also read it in high school and absolutely hated it and then have since reread and uh, yeah, very much don't hate it anymore. Um, what else was I say? I just bought Who Has Seen the Wind, or sorry, uh, All the Light You Cannot See. I haven't read it yet, but I, yes. it's in the house with me. Oh, I'm very excited. 
Um, okay, here's my question for you. Since, since you got literary, there's a short story um, that I'm blanking on the name of. I'm going to look it up while you're answering this question. But uh, in this uh, story, this uh, compound is invented, which wipes out people's ability to recognize attractiveness. Like you can't tell who's good looking anymore. You just can't tell. Everyone just like you can still tell the difference between people, but no one is either good looking or not good looking to you. Um, and so people who can take this quote unquote cure or whatever you want to call it compound and they can no longer tell and then they can just make friends and uh, partnerships and whatever with people based on other more quote unquote uh, deep uh, reasons. Um, if such a thing existed. Uh, would you want to take it? Would you poison the water supply with it so we could uh, get rid of the beauty, the concept of personal beauty altogether? Uh, do you see it as a evil? How do you feel about that, Megan? Would you take the compound? That's a good question. I think <clears throat> that's tough because it's nice to look at pretty people sometimes, you know? Um, yep. So, like, that would be... That's a t it's a tough question because of that. But I think that, like, from a sort of societal standpoint, I think the world be would be a lot better if we didn't place such high value on attractiveness and sort of make assumptions that pretty people are better at things than not pretty people. I think the world would be a better place because that is definitely what we do. It's not true. Um just like being rich doesn't mean that you're smart, but we tend to conflate those things. And I think that if we were able to get rid of it, I think the world would be a better place, but I would very much then I think miss the opportunity to talk about the hottest coaches in the NHL, for example. Exactly. It's a, it's called uh, liking what you see a documentary by Ted Chang. Interesting. Okay. That's the name of the story. Avery, would you wipe out the concept of beauty if you could? I would not know. I would, I would not, you know, I, I mean, in the same way. And, you know, I agree with Megan in the sense of, you know what, we shouldn't put as much priority in the old world would be a better place. But again, for, for silly and humorous things like, you know, coach rankings or their shenanigans, I would not want that to no longer be a thing just because of the humor of that. It's very funny. I think uh, I'll answer my own question. Say, I think there was a time in my life when I would have, because I was just very suspicious of any surface things. I thought, ah, oh, you got to go deeper on blah, 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 blah. But uh, no, I think beauty is nice. It's aesthetics are a nice part of uh, the world and make the world a more interesting place. So I'm inclined against it myself. All right, Avery, it's your turn. Ask a good question. Uh, all right, give me one second. Glad to hear. Give me one second. Had mine here. Uh, hang on. And this, and this is a great reader right now that I try to pull my question. This is just great audio for anybody listening. Hey, that's okay. If anybody listens to my other podcast that I do with my friend Kelsey, we spent approximately 15 minutes of our last episode like Googling book titles as we were remaking a list of books that we think people should read. And we were like talking about it as we were doing it, scintillating listening. So don't even worry. <laughs> okay, I got one here. And this is maybe, maybe it's a deeper one. Here's mine. So, for both of you, what do you what do you think your role is in this world? Mm, that's a good one. Oh, I have an answer to that. Um, all right. So, as we all know, I'm a teacher, um, and I wanted to be a teacher because I had a really, really good social studies teacher when I was in junior high school, and he was very like 
very focused on social issues and social justice well before that was like a sort of popular thing to be um to the point that like he used to write on the board you know how teachers write plo on the board he used to write pdne instead which meant please do not erase because he didn't want to be seen as like in support of the plo which i now realize the plo were not the bad guys i learned this as an adult it kind of dawned on me finally that they weren't the bad guys um but that's a different question for a different day. Um, and so he was just that one of those kind of people. And I always thought that that was kind of cool. And so when I went into university and I started, you know, with my education degree and started teaching, um, I wanted to always teach like, like AP history, IB history, like those sorts of things. And now I realize that my job is to teach the kids in front of me and the curriculum sort of comes with it. And so at the beginning of every course, at the beginning of every year, I always hope and I tell my students this, I always hope that when they leave my class, that they are better people than when they came into my class. Uh, and if they've learned something along the way, that's a bonus. Um, yeah, it was uh, <clears throat> it's a really interesting question. Um, but I also think I kind of have an answer um, that I would like to, in the more immediate sense, uh, I see my role um, in the earth as just trying to uh, make things more pleasant for the people in my immediate vicinity um, that uh, just connect. It's an interesting question. Um, or it's it's not so much that I don't think it's a tough question to answer, but it's a tough answer to summarize um, in that I would like to uh, have adventures and do interesting things and connect with the humans. And then of those humans that I connect with, I would like to them to be glad that that connection happened, like just make uh, their lives better in that small way. And if I have a slightly larger task, um, I think that I uh, would like to be promoting um, empathy, uh, what I will also call epistemic humility, which is just the constant awareness that you might be wrong, um, that there are other perspectives which aren't, it's not necessarily that they're right, it's just that they're not crazy or stupid, um, that there's multiple ways to uh, look at things. And we can um, benefit uh, from learning to kind of rotate through perspectives. And that will, uh, I think, just allow us to uh, cooperate and help each other better. Avery? I like that. I would say what, I'll see my role in this world. I would say my role in this world is be someone who can, who can entertain, but also ed- entertain, also educate. And it goes down to not just my not just my work, not just my work in terms of media, but someone who almost every day tries to be a, a good person, tries to be humorous, tries to be empathetic, and I mean it even goes down to what I talk about um, entertaining people. Like one of the big things in my life is as someone who is in the public in the public sphere, public figure. You know, I try to entertain people on and off camera, and that goes. I would say it also goes to me being a pleasant person to somebody because I've seen too many times people who get into my position, they, they kind of lose themselves. They become a, they become a, a very hostile standoffish person. And that's the one thing I've learned is that there've been great example was after an Oiler game uh, a couple of nights ago, I I, after a game, there's a, there's a few teenagers who followed me for quite some time. Um, and they and they and they saw me outside on Sarah Rogers' place. I hung with them after the game, and and I'll peel the crib back a little bit here. Me and the Hawking News, I don't have any, I don't, I don't have a same day deadline, so I'm not in a rush to write my articles 
said, don't have to be up by, be up by, by midnight. But I sat after the game and chatted with them outside Rogers' place for like an hour. And I see it as, you know what? I saw that as a uh, way to entertain people because you know what? Why am I going to be rude to people who consume my content or consume my work? So being, you know, being so we can edu- educate people, entertain, and, you know, just overall, I'm here to be a good person because I've been around people in media and in the hockey world who've been, for lack of a better term, dickheads, to be quite frank. So why should I be that person to them? Well, good answer. Thank you for not being a dickhead. And when you are a dickhead, <laughs> thank you for covering it with a hat. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> this has been the Oilers the Rig Radio uh, Podcast. We hope we've given you something to uh, ponder, consider, and entertained you, and, um, and so forth. All right, you go away now, but you come back. Thanks.